So a couple months ago, we uh, installed a, a, a new lay elder at our church, uh, Rob Broadhead, and uh, we went through the ordination process, and uh, it's a good day. And um, one of the things that uh, we talked about is, is I wanted him to have opportunity to preach fairly soon afterwards. And so today's that day. And so Rob is going to be uh, delivering the message this morning. Now, uh, Rob's been a member of the church here a long time. Yeah. <laughs> a long time. Kids have grown up here, you know. So uh, many people, many of you know him well. Uh, I've, I've really appreciated Rob and getting to know him even more. And, and we get together every week and we we talk through biblical texts and things like that, and so it's just been, it's been enjoyable for me. I mean, maybe he's feeling like he has to endure it, but hey, it's been great for me, so, so that's, that's really good, but it's been, it's been great. And, um, you know, I, uh, I was trying to remember how old you were, Rob. I th- you're north of 50, so we'll say that. Um, and, you know, I give a lot of credit to a guy who, you know, says, I want to preach the gospel for the first time. Okay, I mean, he's taught some Sunday school and things like this, but he's had his, this passion to preach the gospel to, to, to us, and, and, I, and I commend him for that, and so uh, we've been talking, and I, I said, how he feels? Eh, yeah, I'm a little nervous, and I'm like, well, in a few minutes, you'll feel like you want to throw up, so, um, but um, that's how encouraging I, I am, but, um, you know, I get nervous every time too, but you know, he's he's worked hard on this, and so I, I'm I'm so looking forward to this. And so this is the answer to some of my prayers, if I'm going to be transparent. Okay, what we're experiencing here today is an answer to prayer for our congregation. And so, Rob, why don't you come and 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 deliver the message from Luke chapter 19? If you have a Bible, go to Luke 19. Good morning. Be careful what you pray for. You just might get it. All right. <laughs> so it is good to be here with you this morning. And as always, every Sunday, it's the, it's the highlight of my week. Uh, it's said that every journey begun, begins with a single step. And uh, while that is true, it's also true that momentous journeys, journeys that change our lives, that change the hearts of people, that change the course of history, begin with preparation. You know, uh, the poet in us uh, will appreciate and often longs for that meandering uh, journey taking you. It's often heard, uh, you know, take, take me where the wind will, right? And I don't know if, if any of you have ever tried that type of a journey. I wouldn't recommend it. Um, it typically, that type of a journey where you're aimlessly following wherever the whims of, of nature and the wind blow will end with unexpected pitfalls. Uh, you know, you'll end up, in my experience, at dead-end passages, places that uh, you never expected nor wanted to go. And uh, you'll also come at the end of the day where there is no place to rest, no place of re- refreshment, no, no, without a plan. In the end, what you're faced with is uh, that you're not changed for the better, nothing of substance has happened, you're just simply tired, hungry, and frustrated. So... It's my privilege this morning to bring you a message about God's Word today that's about a journey. And the journey uh, that I want to take you on is taking us to the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, if you will. It's a message of hope realized, 
sort of, and a message of victory. But the victory was not what was expected, and that was no mistake. Uh, God planned for that day. He planned for that day from the very beginning of time. He knew from time past, in time immemorial, that when he brought Adam and Eve into this world, they were going to sin. And that when they sinned, he needed to have a plan for redemption. He wasn't surprised. He wasn't, he wasn't caught off guard. And so his plan for redemption had to be put in place before time began. And that plan of redemption would require the most important thing, a redeemer. And that redeemer had to have some qualifications that were unique and powerful. That redeemer could only be a perfect, sinless, spotless lamb. And the only being perfect enough, pure enough, and powerful enough to fulfill all of those requirements and to make it happen was not just any person and not just a king. It had to be the king of kings. All that to introduce to us today our text, which is found in Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. If you would, please follow along as I read. If, you're, uh, if you don't have a Bible in the Pew Bible in front of you, you'll find it on page 878. So reading from Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the moment Mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, his owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer that he might reveal to us what he's laid on my heart today. Father, it is good, as I've said, to be in your, in your house with your people today, with my brothers and sisters here. And it's doubly good to have your word and the truth of it, to not just read, Father, but to apply to our lives, to be changed, molded, and shaped, to be like Jesus, your precious Son. Father, as I said, it's no, it was no mistake, it was no haphazard thing that happened, that Jesus came in the form of a baby and then came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. So, Father, I pray that uh, as, as we dig into this and unpack some of what happened here on that day um, thousands of years ago, I just pray, Father, that our, our focus would shift completely and wholly on Jesus and that from this point forward, we would realize just how important and impactful this was, not just for the world, 
but for each one of us individually as well. So uh, open our minds and our hearts. Pour your spirit into them. Give us, give us your wisdom today. And we'll thank you and praise you because you alone are worthy in the name of Christ. Amen. So the journey to Jerusalem began approximately 18 miles away in a small city named Jericho. And that was, not a, that was not a happenstance. It wasn't haphazardly picked. There was a reason for that. And Jericho, you might recall, was a pretty, a pretty important place in the history of Jesus' ministry. In Jericho, that was the place where prior to leaving to go to Jerusalem, Jesus had just met with Zacchaeus, very famous story that you might recall. He also healed the lame there. He gave sight to the blind. As a matter of fact, that was the place where blind Bartimaeus was, was given his sight. His, his renown and recognition grew in the city of Jericho. It was a place of, of um, great fame for him. And the people recognized all that he was doing. And we might imagine that someone who had the power to do what Jesus did had created quite a stir there. And I would believe that we were right. But Jesus' focus wasn't to stay in Jericho. It wasn't to continue to do miracles and to heal the lame, to give sight to the blind. It was to go to Jerusalem, the city of David. This was the place where he, had, he knew he was to be tortured, beaten, and put to death for the sins of the world. But to do this, he'd have to make a momentous journey. A journey that would change the lives of all of those there and all of his followers and of all the world. So he was going to set the course for the world on a clear path to redemption. And this was his father's plan, as I had mentioned before, from time past. It was, a, it was his plan for Jesus to make an 18-mile journey from Jericho to the city of Jerusalem. You'll notice in verse 28 that the, uh, the passage that's recorded by Luke says, and when he had said these things, and that's referring to these miracles and the different things that had happened in, Jer in Jericho and the cities leading up to this, he uh, went up, he was going up to Jerusalem. And it's important to know that it's true that it does mean up. And when they say up, they mean quite a while up, quite a lot up. The 18-mile march that Jesus was about to begin to the road, uh, on the road to Jerusalem, beginning in Jericho, has an elevation change of about 3,300 feet. And I wanted to put a little context and, and, um, and, and a little bit of perspective to Jesus' uh, journey. He traveled approximately 18 miles. Now, we don't walk all that far anymore, most of the time, because we have cars available to us all of the time. But 18 miles is, coincidentally, approximately, give or take a few tenths, exactly the distance from my house in Zimbabwe to the church right here. I say Zimbabwe because my brother-in-law affectionately calls going to our house because it's so far away, going to Zimbabwe. In case if you haven't been to our house, I used Google Maps and looked, out, looked at a couple of other places as well. So if you travel from here to, to uh, Blue Mounds, it's just a little under 18 miles. Many of you come from... Belleville, that's about a little under 18 miles. And another 
landmark here in the county that uh, people should know well is the Dane County Regional Airport is about precisely 18 miles from this church. So it's a pretty good distance. It takes a while to travel even in a car. For Jesus, it was a full day journey. Now to give perspective to a 3,300 foot elevation gain is a much more difficult task here in Wisconsin in the Midwest. You may know or you may not know that the highest elevation in the state of Wisconsin is Tim's Hill. I had thought that it was Rib Mountain, but I was wrong. Um, Rib Mountain's about, I think, 30 or 40 feet shorter than Tim's Hill. And Tim's Hill is only 1,952 feet tall, uh, height above uh, of sea level. Currently in Verona, we're at about 970 feet above sea level, so we only have a gain of about 1,000 feet going up to Tim's Hill. So it was, a, it was a big journey that Jesus was embarking on to go from Jericho to Jerusalem. Not only was it a, a long distance, it was also a substantial amount of elevation that he was going to be climbing up. Which brings me to my first point here today. Because uh, you, may have, you may have noticed that uh, my, the title of my message is, The King Has Come. We cannot be silent, which actually encompasses both of my points. The first point is, the king has come. So I think it's important to note that on many levels, what Jesus set out to do, he did for our benefit. And yes, it was momentous. It was a monumental shift in the ministry of Jesus. And it was the most significant event in history to that point. Not only... Did it change the course of those who witnessed the miracles that Jesus had already performed but it, and the healings that he, had, uh, that he had done? It changed the very essence of man's relationship with the Almighty God, the creator of the, the universe. All of that was being set in motion by Jesus be, beginning on this journey. So when Jesus went up to Jerusalem, he went up knowing he was going to be crucified. He would be separated from God the Father, and he would experience a separation that was more painful than any that we can imagine. And he did all that so that we wouldn't have to experience that separation, so that we wouldn't be the one that God the Father turned his back on, so that we might have access to the most holy God. About two miles short of the city of Jerusalem, Jesus stopped. Again, this was not just because he was tired, although I'm sure he was after having traveled 16 miles and having gone up as far as he had. But it was because Jesus needed to begin to unfold the most important uh, revelation to this point that, ha that the world had known. The exact location of the city of Bethphage, we're not sure of, so a lot of scholars believe that where he stopped was actually in Bethany. And when he paused there, he, he had a little discussion with his disciples. And Jesus paused and he sent them to the city opposite, which is believed to be Bethphage. And he gave the disciples some very specific instructions. And the instructions were for securing a very specific beast of burden. And that beast of burden was going to be used for the final leg of his journey to Jerusalem. Jesus tells them, and he tells them in verse 30, 
Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. The Lord has need of it. These were very specific instructions. Interesting that at that moment in time, and in the, in the disciples' view, it had to be very strange instructions. Because we're sure that from our perspective, 2,000 years later, it all makes perfect sense. Oh, of course, Jesus had to come in riding on a donkey. But the, in the moment, the disciples had to be confused and a little bit put off or just thinking, this is really strange, really odd, that Jesus has very, very specific instructions for us to go to the city opposite and find what? To find a colt of a donkey that had never been sat on. Now, the uh, Bible scholars believe that the reason that a, that a donkey that had never been sat on was, was uh, chosen by Jesus was because uh, a uh, donkey that had never been sat on or, or an animal that had never been used was ceremonial clean. And that very well might be true. But again, we need to keep in perspective, this was not something that Jesus conjured up at the moment. This was something that had been put in place, a sequence of events that had been foretold and foreseen hundreds of years prior. And so, Jesus, the promised Messiah, the promised one, the King of Kings, the one who healed, was telling them, you need to go in and get me the colt of a donkey. Why? Why? A, a large part of the reason would also be that he knew that this was the time in history that he would be revealed as the king of kings. That he was the promised Messiah, the coming, uh, the coming one. The one who had been promised in the Old Testament. And this was a monumental shift again in Jesus' ministry and in his, um, in his revelation. To this point, you'll recall even last week, Pastor Jeremy spoke when he was speaking in Mark chapter 5 about uh, Jairus and, and how his daughter had passed, uh, had, had, was dead. And when he raised her from the dead, he told them, don't tell people about this. He was keeping it all under wraps. Why? The time hadn't yet fully come. He didn't want people to know at that point who he was. Not in a broad sense. Now, he was, as he approached Jerusalem, he knew the time was, was coming and it was indeed here that he must be revealed as the king of kings. And this came in a prophecy hundreds of years prior as well. If you, if you recall, or if you want to turn there on your own, in Zechariah chapter 9, it was very clearly stated that your king is coming to you on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And again I say, why, why the colt of a donkey? Well, there was also historical precedent for, uh, for the kings who come in peace to ride on a donkey. As a matter of fact, Jesus was in the line of David, and David and his son Solomon both rode donkeys. As a matter of fact, David had um, Solomon, when he was declared king, to before the people riding on a donkey. So you see it was prophesied, and that was really, really important so that people would recognize and see exactly what was happening before their eyes. 
So again, the choice of the donkey was not haphazard or by chance. And this further illustrated some very, the very specific instructions Jesus gave to the two disciples who went to go secure the donkey for him. He told them, tell them when you find it, that uh, when they ask, or if, sh- if they should ask, why are you untying the donkey? That uh, you would say that the Lord has need of it. Now, it seems like uh, that could be, oh, it's just some, it's some instructions. But every single instruction that Jesus gave happened exactly as he said. And there's a reason for that. I wonder whether the disciples recognized that in the moment. But we should recognize and know a lot of that, I believe, was for our benefit. And the reason that I believe it was for our benefit was because who could possibly know in a small town there would be a donkey tied that was the colt of a donkey that had never been ridden, and that when the disciples approached and indeed went to just untie the donkey and take it with them, that the owners would come to him, and come to the disciples and ask, why are you untying the donkey? And then it's recorded, because you know, after Jesus tells them these things, it says in verse 32, so they went away uh, and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. Everything transpired exactly as Jesus had had described it. How could anyone but someone who was omniscient know all of these things? I would submit to you it would be impossible for everyone to know these things other than an omniscient and holy God. Jesus was beginning to pull back the curtain of revealing to people, clearly, I am the promised Messiah. I am the coming King. And the coming king and prince of peace is, as I've said and used the word many times, a momentous occasion. And momentous, I looked up in the dictionary, is uh, is defined as of far-reaching importance and consequence. And I believe that this is certainly an occasion that fits that description and that definition. And I would even uh, submit to you that the momentous arrival of the King of Kings deserves a monument. But, you'll recall, monuments were a common practice in the Old Testament. And stones were often used for those monuments. Now, they weren't anything that was carved or anything too fancy. However, they were a big and important part of the Jewish history and culture. You'll recall in Joshua chapter 4, after the Ark of the Covenant had been brought through the Jordan River, that, uh, that the people were instructed to, God told the, uh, the priest, gather 12 stones from the, from the bed of the Jordan River and pile them up on the, on the bank of the Jordan River. And there was a reason for that. If you'll recall, the reason was because they wanted future generations, when they saw those, those stones, to then ask those who had gone before, what are the stones for? What, what's that monument for? What does it, what's the meaning of those stones? And they were to, to answer them, remember, this is what happened. This is when God actually stopped the Jordan River and we were able to, with the Ark of the Covenant, walk through on dry, you know, on dry ground 
and none of the people were swept away by the, by the raging river, and we were able to safely enter the promised land. So they did exactly as God had, had uh, asked them to do. And we know a little something about monuments here in this country too, don't we? In our country, we have a pretty famous monument that I was, uh, I was able to go and uh, visit when I was, I'm uh, getting old, so I'm forgetting whether it was when I was 13 or 14, right? 55, by the way. All right, I was here 32 years. Um, <laughs> okay, thanks. And uh, so uh, back when I was 13 or 14, my parents took me and my family out to the state of South Dakota. Maybe many of you have been there. And in the western side of the, the state of South Dakota, which was uh, the home place, the home state of my stepfather, Kurt Benz. So he really wanted us to experience his home state. But the interesting thing was we got to go to uh, the Black Hills of South Dakota and see a very famous monument named Mount Rushmore. Maybe you've seen it. It has four presidents' heads on it. It has George Washington, <laughs> Thomas Jefferson, Teddy Roosevelt, and Abraham Lincoln, right? And they're 60 feet tall, and it can be seen from 60 miles away. That's a pretty impressive monument. It was a pretty impressive thing that was done, wasn't it? It's a big deal to found a country, uh, expand, the, expand the, uh, the borders of the country, secure the country, end slavery, and expand the, you know, the, and make firm the, our nation's uh, foundations. All those things are big things, but I would declare to you that the King of Kings and his triumphal entry is bigger and immeasurably better. Which brings me to my second point. We must not be silent. Jesus had been working up to this day. It had been planned for. All of the, all of the events had been set in motion. And he knew it was coming. And he knew what it meant before he ever opened the scrolls back when he was a young man in the synagogue. He knew where he was going and why he was going there. He knew that he was going to be healing people. He was going to be doing unbelievable things, feeding thousands with a couple of loaves and, and fishes. He was going to be showing people that the, the lame could walk, that the blind could see. He was doing things that no other person could do. Jesus also knew that his kingdom was not of this world. He knew that he wasn't coming as a political ruler, and typically that's what we think of as a king, don't we? But that wasn't going to be who Jesus was. That's not who he ever was meant to be. He didn't come to reign on a kingly throne here in this world. Not now. He came to, re to redeem people from their sins. And he, gave, he came so that we would have eternal life and that we would have opportunity to live with the eternal Godhead. Now when a king or a queen is, uh, is announced and if they are crowned, there's usually a lot of pomp and circumstance that we think of. I don't see that in Luke chapter 19, do you? If we pick up the reading again at, at, uh, at 35, we see something remarkable when we read, and they brought 
it to Jesus, that it being the donkey, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So there was a din. There was, there was a lot of buzz going on, we would say, today, wouldn't we? Do you hear the crescendo building in Jerusalem? If you listen closely, you can hear it. Do you sense the enormity of this event? The earth had been groaning in anticipation of this event for hundreds of years. The people had been living under the oppression, the cruel oppression of the Roman government for decades. And they wanted to be delivered. The Prince of Kings, Prince of Peace, and the King of Kings is announcing his, his arrival. And if you're a believer that Jesus is the only mediator between God and men, our king has come. We, we should identify with them. Which demands I pause and ask, do you see the monumental moment? Do you recognize that Jesus is that promised Messiah? The Lord of lords and monuments, uh, Lord of lords and king of kings came to save you from your sins, to save me from my sins. And I've been talking about monuments and stones a lot. But remember, God doesn't want a graven image. He doesn't even want a stone monument. No. He tells us in Hebrews where he writes his law. Remember, the Ten Commandments were written on stone, tablets, right? He doesn't want that anymore. He tells us in Hebrews that he now writes the, his law on the hearts and in the minds of men. The remembrance, the monument of this most worthy of events is to be passed from one believer to the next, from one follower of Christ to the next, to the next, and to the next. Jesus wants living stones, speaking monuments that honor him forever. And I ask, is that you? Are you that living monument to Christ? Are you that speaking stone? Do you remember who Jesus is? Do you recognize his finished work on the cross? Let's read again in Luke, verses 35 through 38, because I think the impact is so easy to miss. And they said the Lord had need of it to the men who owned the donkey. And I started in 34. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near him all the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The King has arrived. He's announced his arrival as the peaceful ruler of the world. He waited until this moment in time to reveal his kingship because he knew surely and specifically and as surely and specifically as he knew that he should ride on that full, uh, colt of a donkey and where it would be found, he knew that he, um, that he needed 
to be there to satisfy, uh, I'm sorry, he knew <laughs> that there would be opposition. And he knew that the opposition would be to his being announced king. And the people who had witnessed his miracles, healings, and preaching had just an inkling, right? As they were shouting, as they were shouting, um, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They had an inkling of who Jesus was. But, but many of them were still looking for a political, uh, a political savior, not a savior for their souls. And I don't believe they completely understood the enormity of what was transpiring before their very eyes. If they had, they would have preferred that Jesus stay there with them. They wouldn't have turned in a week, less than a week, and been crying, crucify him. As I said, everyone wasn't pleased to declare and recognize the arrival of the king. There were those who were threatened by what was transpiring in front of them. Even, and these were the very people who should have known better. These were the people who knew the scriptures, who were the teachers of the law. These were the people who knew inside and out the, the, the scrolls and should have been recognizing what was unfolding before their very eyes. And instead, they were asking for silence. They, weren't, they were demanding silence. They were shouting back to Jesus that they wanted silence. As I said, Jesus doesn't want stones crying out. He wants living stones, not mute stones. He wants people speaking from their hearts, telling who Jesus is. So the opposition comes in verses 39 and 40. When the Pharisees in the crowd, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd, said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So what's the significance of these rocks Jesus asked for and demands? What is the significance of the rocks Jesus asked for and demands? The significance of the rocks are that the lamb brings life. And we need to share that life. We need to share what Jesus has done in our lives in order to make sure that the greatest news that's transpiring before our very eyes here in Jerusalem is shared throughout the world. It's life-changing news. It's world-changing news. It changes the course of history forever. The most significant historic event is happening right here in the triumphal entry to be followed by an even bigger significant event. Yes, the, when we read the, the Pharisees selfishly and coldly cry out, teacher, rebuke your disciples, Jesus responds in an unexpected way. When he says, I tell you, if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out, it should have made them shudder. Throughout our journey with Jesus to Jerusalem, Jesus has been setting the stage for the, his arrival in Jerusalem to declare, he's openly declaring, he is the king, the king of kings. And I ask, what happens when a king or queen is, is coronated or crowned? A lot of pomp and circumstance. 
But there's none of that here. In 1838, when Queen Victoria was crowned the Queen of England, it's estimated over 400,000 people crowded into London. And they watched dozens of ornate carriages carrying all of the, uh, all of the uh, dignitaries and the queen to, uh, to go to take her vows to try to be a benevolent queen before the people. There were people in their finest suits. There were military leaders in their, in their uniforms. There were uh, fancy things, scepters, crowns, things that were jeweled and made of precious stones and metals. And even though Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and it's a, a, a significance, and, the, and it's an event that's of so much greater significance than we can even imagine. It's by a thousandfold bigger. There's none of that here. So we need to recognize just how big a deal this really is. Because I declare to you that Jesus coming and being declared king is bigger and more important and worthy of our being a living monument. So remember, the people were shouting because they recognized that something, someone special had come. A king that they believed would deliver them from underneath the, the uh, oppressive sandals uh, of, the, of the Roman occupation. That was what was top of their mind. That was what they had hoped for. But that's not what Jesus came to do. As I mentioned before, we have the advantage of having the canon. We have history. We can look back and we see that we, as we ask ourselves why all of this was recorded, we can faithfully and, and, and uh, clearly see every detail laid out in the four synoptic gospels. They didn't have that, but we do, putting even more burden on us to recognize it and to respond. So the answer lies plainly in the text in, uh, as to why Jesus, why Jesus was, uh, was responding the way that he did to the Pharisees. When the Pharisees called out, it wasn't a timid whisper. They were, they were upset. They really wanted this to be quashed. They'd been planning and plotting and trying for weeks and, I'm sure, and months to try to put down this, the fame of this person, this Jesus, who was coming and doing all these wonderful things that the people were so excited and, and, uh, and, and joyous about. They didn't like it. It threatened them. It threatened their very position because they failed to see who he was. And Jesus tells them that the rocks will cry out. There's nothing subtle about what they said, is there? When they said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Here they were crying something that should have made everyone excited. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Wouldn't we all want to have the king? If, if we knew scripture, wouldn't we want to know the king? Wouldn't we want to know the king was right before us? Right before our very eyes? And, he, and then <laughs> to, to, to then want to quiet something as wonderful as peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Don't we all desire peace? Wouldn't that be great to, to have peace, to know the peace that Jesus brings here right now? We long for that even today. But no, the Pharisees were shouting it down. They did not want that message to continue to be brought out. And Jesus gives a simple, 
yet multifaceted answer for the world and for us. Have you heard it? Have you recognized that Jesus is the one and only promised Messiah? Do you see yourself as a broken pot? As one that needs to be put back together and mended so that Jesus can pour his spirit in and and work through you to, to change the world, to reveal what he's done in your lives. A sinner needs a savior. Do you recognize yourself? Do you recognize Jesus as that savior, as the Messiah? Have you made him your Lord and your King? Brothers and sisters, if you're here today and saying, yes, that's me, and I hope it is, if you're saying, yes, I am the subject of that king who came to save the world, who entered Jerusalem on the the back of a lowly donkey, then if you recognize all of that, if you recognize that Jesus came and died, he was coming to die and be buried three days in the grave to be raised again with the Father. If all of that's true, If that's you, what should we do about it? Which brings me to my conclusion. We cannot be silent. Jesus is clearly identifying that in verses 39 and 40, when he he tells people, I tell you, if these are silent, the very stones would cry out. The application can often be made very simple. And Sometimes we, we get hemmed in by, uh, you know, we think, that we think of Matthew 28, which is true. We need to go into all the world, making disciples, preaching and teaching, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Yes, we need to do that. But living out the gospel is even more than that. And it's easy to go beyond, you know, to go too far and then to be hemmed in by saying, well, I don't, I'm not called to be an evangelist. Well, I would, I would say we all are on a certain level, but that doesn't mean that that's what our vocation is going to be. So what, is that, what does that look like then? It means that we can't neglect building one another up in the Spirit. We can't be silent about who Jesus is for us. We can't be silent when opportunity arises, that when we, when we have the opportunity to share the hope that we have in our hearts, we need to be ready to do that And it should be something that's not forced. It should be a part of our everyday conversation. So how do we do this? How do we make spirit-led conversation the normal everyday part of our lives? Again, it's not so much that the the instructions are hard. It's life gets in the way. We need to read our Bible. If we don't hear God's word, how can we possibly live it out? Devotions are as simple as reading God's word. And we we can often complicate it so much. That's what we need to be doing. We need to be in God's word. We need to not neglect meeting together. How else are we going to build, build one another up if we're not with each other? We need to be together. We can't neglect the assembling together, as as, as the book says. And we need to pray. We need to have that relationship with God daily. We need to keep, a pro- because that helps us to keep a proper perspective. We're talking about the king has come. And when we recognize a king, we realize that a king is so much more lofty, so much more important, has so much more power than, than we have. When we read God's word, 
that should help us to stay humble and keep a proper perspective on who God is and who we are. And it'll make it that much easier for us to share when we realize it's not our power that we need, it's his. It's not our thoughts that we need to share, they're his. It's not, his, it's not our truth, it's his. So that's how we can make it a part of our everyday language. And that'll make the pathway clear to those that have no idea who Jesus is. The, the people out in the world who are hearing the Pharisees saying, be silent. Silence this thought. Silence this Prince of Peace. The, the people that are saying the King hasn't come. We can live through our lives showing that, that the truth is He has and that's who we are. So I believe that the application is we are living stones. We need to live out the gospel in every way and every opportunity that we have. And I believe that the most important thing we can remember from that second part of the title of my message is we cannot be silent. If we're silent, we've actually shifted camps, if that's our normal way of being. We are with the Pharisees. We're, we're at the very best, we could say we're, we're you know, becoming what the Pharisees want us to be. And Jesus is telling us silence is not an option. Because if we're silent, he's going to make the stones cry out. Never, that was never his intention. That's not what he wants. He wants us to cry out. He's not saying there's another way we could do something a little different. No, he's telling us we need to cry out. We read in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 that we, that we are supposed to build one another up with these words because it should bring us joy. It should bring us hope. And I can't think of a better way to end than to remember those words. We need to build each other up with those words and let our light shine as that city on a hill did so many years ago. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for the opportunity that you had here for me today to, to um, bring your word. I pray, Father, that it didn't go out uh, void, but that, Father, my heart for knowing you as king and that, uh, that we not only would recognize you as king, but that, Father, um, to recognize how important that is and that keeping a right perspective and to share our faith and to share our king with the world is exactly what we're here for. And Father, help us to not be silent. Help us to, in love, encourage one another. Help us to build one another up and help us to go out and share that love because Jesus was not meant to be a private club of those who have been called, Father. He wants everyone that hears to be saved. Now, we know that that won't happen, but Father, we know that that's his heart's desire and it needs to be ours as well. Make it so in our lives for Jesus' glory in whose name we pray.